Advent is a time set in the church calendar that many denominations and churches celebrate each and every year. It's four Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve. And Advent comes from the Latin word, which means coming. It's a time of anticipation. It's a time of waiting. You see, for us, we have the blessed vantage point of being on the other side of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And so we never had to wait for the Messiah to come. We never had to wait for Emmanuel, God, with us. But God's people for centuries upon centuries, thousands and thousands of years, had to wait for Jesus to arrive, for the Son of God to be born, for the Messiah to come and restore and redeem his people. And so because we never had to wait, many of us can take for granted the wonder and the glory of the incarnation. You see, what we celebrate on Christmas Eve, which we're going to be celebrating in Brickell this year, and next week we have a surprise announcement on where we're going to be having our Christmas Eve service, so stay tuned. But what we celebrate on Christmas Eve is the incarnation. It is the God of the universe who has become man has been born in a manger in a little town of Bethlehem to an overlooked couple, Mary and Joseph, and yet it's one of the most life-altering moments and events in human history. The incarnation, the glory and the wonder of it. And so the reason that we celebrate Advent every year is to feel that spiritual weight, the same weight that was felt by God's people for hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting and waiting and prophecy after prophecy. You see, all of us here feel Advent. Even if we don't think through it and we just kind of stumble into Christmas, we all feel Advent. In fact, every single person you know feels Advent. We feel things coming. For instance, we feel party invitations coming, right? We feel a higher-than-normal credit card bill coming. We feel, hopefully, fingers crossed, more cold weather coming. We feel that the Christmas lights are coming around the city. We feel that family engagements and time together is coming and possibly some awkward conversations. A lot of things are coming in this season, and we feel it. But much of what we feel is a byproduct of the commercialization of Christmas. And I'm not saying any of these things are bad or wrong. I anticipate them too. I look forward to many of these things except for the higher credit card bill. I love the season of Christmas. But we're meant to not just enjoy how our culture has adopted Christmas and some of the things that we look forward to. And the Mariah Carey song that we hear at nauseum over and over and over again. We're supposed to feel the spiritual weight of the anticipation of Jesus' arrival. We have the blessed vantage point of having to look back, but we want to go through a season of waiting, of longing, of looking, of anticipating, so that the celebration on Christmas Eve, on Christmas Day as well, is that much sweeter. So my prayer for us as a church is that we would step into that space, that we would not rush Christmas, that we would not throw aside the significance of what we're actually celebrating, that we would sit in it and feel the weight, the anticipation of what is to come in about a month, the incarnation. We'd see the glory and the wonder of that. So that is why we celebrate Advent, to feel that, to prepare ourselves for something that is so profoundly beautiful. 
And the way that we're going to do that this year is through a series we're calling the Christmas Mosaic. Now, a mosaic is a picture that is arranged from individual unique pieces formed together to, to create a cohesive image. And so over the next four Sundays, five talks total, including Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking at different unique vantage points that are pointing to or looking at the incarnation, God become man. Christmas. And we begin our series tonight in episode one with the prophet's candle. So we're going all the way back to the Old Testament, to the book of Micah. So if you have your Bible with you, if you have your Bible online at home or wherever you may be, you can turn to the book of Micah in the Old Testament, chapter four and chapter five. As Simone said earlier, if you have our Crossbridge Brickle app, there's a note section that you can follow along with extra notes for the sermon, and the verses will be on the screen as well. But before we jump into the passage, I want to say a little something about Micah and prophecy in the Old Testament, so we're kind of all tracking together because Old Testament biblical prophecy can be a little confusing. So Micah was a prophet during the time period of about 750 to 700 BC, so centuries upon centuries before Christ. He was a prophet around the same time period as the prophet Isaiah, another very famous prophet in the Old Testament. They both prophesied to the same kings, and he writes his book speaking to Israel about the judgment that they're facing because of their sin, but he gives them hope for how God is gonna restore them, God's promises to them. And so he's speaking to Israel, God's people, that they are to hold on to hope, that God is patient with them. There are consequences for their sin, but he will never forsake them. He will restore them. But he also looks not only to the near future, but the distant future of what God is going to do for his people for all of eternity. And so the way prophecy works in the Old Testament is important to understand. Prophets speak about the distant future and the near future all at the same time often. There's a little uh, chart that I put up on the screen above. It shows the long arrow is the distant future, the, the shorter arrow is the near future. And the way that prophets will speak is they will speak about what God is going to do. They'll share prophecy of what he's going to do in the future, both near and far, sometimes not only in the same chapter, but in the same verse, which is very confusing for us because if we were to write prophecy, here's how it would go. Here's what's going to happen in the near future, bullet points. Here's what's going to happen in the distant future, bullet points. Got it? Good. We want clear, detailed points. We are a Twitter culture. We want it to be very precise, very clear. But the ancient Near Eastern culture had this emphasis on the beauty of words and the poetry of words. And the prophets want you to slow down to interpret what is being said carefully. And if you don't, you may get things mixed up. So we're going to see that today in our passage. The prophet Micah is speaking to God's people about what will happen in the near future. But more importantly for us, what will happen in the distant future. So Micah chapter 4, he begins in verse 11 where we start, and it says this. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. So he starts out and he says this. Many nations are assembled against you. 
let her eyes, let her saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. So the prophet Micah is speaking to Zion. Zion is a, a word used oftentimes for Jerusalem, but in a larger, more general context for God's people. So the nations or the people or cultures are set against God's people, and their intention is to defile God's people. So we have a problem here. The next verse, verse 12, says this. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. So the nations, the people and the cultures, are set against God's people. They want to defile and destroy God's people. But what they don't know is God's plans for his people. They don't know God's thoughts. They don't know what God has in store. And then the prophet Micah says, here's what God has in store. He's going to gather them like sheaves, which is speaking of sheaves of grain, that are to be pounded out on the threshing floor to be made useful. See, what would happen is you would take grain and you would gather it together and you would pound it on a threshing floor so that it could be used for baking bread. In my case, it would be making pasta. It's just to use it for your own purposes. So God is going to take the nations, the issues and the people and the cultures that are set against his people, and he's actually going to use them for his purposes and plans that they don't know about. So this is meant to give the people of God hope. Why? Because even though it feels like everything is pressing in around you, you are surrounded, the cultures and the people are set against you, they do not know what God has in store for you, his plans and his thoughts. And he's going to, in fact, even use them for his good purposes for you, his people. So with that in mind, he gives this battle cry of sorts in the next couple verses. He says, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, you shall, and shall devote their gain to the Lord and their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel." So he's speaking here certainly about what's going to happen in the very near future. Saying, listen, the nations are set against you. They want to defile you, but they don't know God's plans. They don't know his thoughts. They don't know that God is, in fact, even going to use them for his purposes. And so you can take hope. You can arise. You can muster your troops. You can be prepared for conflict and battle because you know that victory is on your side. God is going to restore. God is going to save. God is going to redeem. In fact, the wounds that you suffer at the hands of these nations looking to defile you, he says, is like a strike on the cheek. It's not a mortal wound. It's not going to destroy you or kill you. It's just a strike on the cheek. So he's giving Israel, God's people, hope. God's going to restore you. You're not going to be mortally wounded. You may feel surrounded, but God is on your side and there's victory. He's speaking about what God will do. And we know from history that God does, in fact, do this. He restores Israel from destruction and from exile. But he's not only speaking about what happens in the near future, but he transitions abruptly here to what God is going to do in the distant future. In the very next verse, in verse 2 of chapter 5, he says this. 
But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Okay. He's talking about mustering troops and preparing for battle, this battle cry. And now he transitions to speaking about a city. And not only any city, but a very small city. Bethlehem was a very little city. Nothing really important happened in Bethlehem. And then he attaches the word Ephrathah to Bethlehem, which Ephrathah was the region that Bethlehem sat in. And this, again, is an overlooked region. It's not really important. And it's really confusing because he's talking about waging war and mustering your troops and strength and battle cry. And you're like, wait, wait, none of that's going to happen from Bethlehem. You're not going to wage war from Bethlehem. There's like very, not a lot of people in the region of Ephrathah or in that city. That's not strategic in any way, shape, or form. What's taking place here? You see, he's connecting God's people to a very important figure, uh, a, a figure that fought for God's people and was given great honor for the way that he led and the way that God used him. And that person is David. David is from the town of Bethlehem, and he is an Ephrathite. He's from that region. Look what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem. These things attached together with David. In Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. Isn't this interesting? So you have David, who was an overlooked king. He was anointed king, but he was overlooked. He was the last of the brothers to be viewed as a viable king. Even when he was anointed king, he was overlooked, and he was put aside for at least over 10 years before he took the throne. And yet, this overlooked king from a little town of Bethlehem in this region of Ephrathah that nobody really is concerned about becomes the greatest king in the Old Testament, the greatest king for the people of Israel. You see, what Micah is doing here is he's drawing this connection so you understand what he's about to say. You pick up the significance of the prophecy that comes in the rest of chapter or verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now this is not speaking about David, because this is one who's coming forth is from of old and from ancient days. You see, what Micah is saying here to the people of God is that there is one who is going to come from Bethlehem. He is going to come from the region of Ephrathah, just like David did. In fact, he's going to come from his lineage. He's going to come from of old, from this storied lineage of David. But he's going to be the ruler of all. In verse 4, he says that he's going to rule to the ends of the earth. He's going to be the king of kings. He's going to rule the whole world. He's going to be from the lineage of David, but he's the ancient of days, meaning he's the eternal king. This is the king of kings, as Isaiah says in the same time period, the prophet Isaiah. You see, what Micah is saying is hold on to hope, people of God, Zion, because even though it may feel like the nations are pressed against you, Even though everything is set against you and you feel overlooked and insignificant and small, guess what? From this little town, this overlooked region, will come a better David. A better David. Can you imagine? 
How comforting is what Micah is saying here? You see, he's saying to us that if you feel like an Ephrathite, meaning you feel small, insignificant, overlooked, little, less than in comparison to others, there is a king who is coming who identifies with you because he comes from the very same type of environment. A little town, but he's mighty. An overlooked region, but he rules the whole world. You see, what what the prophet Isaiah is saying to God's people is that little doesn't equal insignificant. And overlooked doesn't have to mean a, a lack of a compelling purpose. And that the last to be chosen can be the first to lead. You see, he's giving hope to God's people who feel like Ephrathites, who feel overlooked and insignificant. And what do we see in the incarnation? Jesus from the lineage of who? David, the son of God, fully God and fully man, the ancient of days, the eternal ruler, the king of kings, born in Bethlehem in the region of Ephrathah to an overlooked couple, Mary and Joseph, not even born in a house, but in a cave and placed in a feeding trough so that you might know that this ruler identifies with you when you feel similar, overlooked and insignificant. You see, what is being spoken here is that though it feels in life oftentimes like the nations and the people and the cultures and issues in your life are set against you, that the incarnation reminds you that there is a ruler who identifies with you in that pain and in those moments. And that though the things set against you, the things that are pressing in around you, feel weighty, no one and nothing knows God's plans except God himself. And his plans for you are actually for good, he says in the book of Romans. And that he's going to use the issues and the people and the enemies and the things that are pressing in on your life actually for his purposes, which is for your good. You see, he's trying to bring hope and comfort to us, God's people. I was thinking about it like this this week. That when Micah 4 is your reality, meaning you feel like everything is set against you, Micah 5 is your promise. When Micah 4 is your reality, Micah 5 is your promise. Like, God, I just feel like everything is set against me. I feel like everything is pushing on me. I feel surrounded. I feel hopeless. I feel insignificant. I feel overlooked. I feel overwhelmed. And yet your promise is that there is a ruler, there is a king of kings who rules the whole world, who is the ancient of days, who identifies with you in that because he was born of that very same region. Isn't he a peculiar king? You would expect the ancient of days, the king of kings, the ruler of the whole world to be born in a place of power, in Jerusalem or in Rome, in a palace removed from people and set up away from people to be honored and worshipped. And yet this king of kings is to be honored and worshipped. And yet he is not born in a place of power. He's born in Bethlehem, a little town. Because he's come for people that feel the very same way. Micah is giving hope to God's people as we feel like this too. As we struggle with this reality and these labels. 
and these pressures in our life, things set against us. But it gets even better because here's what it says in verse 4. It says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace to the ends of the earth. Here's what he says. This king of kings, this ruler, this one who is over all, the ancient of days, comes from this little town of Bethlehem. He will stand for his people. He will shepherd his flock like a shepherd who spends time with his sheep. A shepherd is never removed from the sheep. He's always near to them, guiding them, protecting them, standing up for them. That's what he says here. He will stand and shepherd his flock. Why? So that the flock, the people of God, might live securely. You see, the desire of the shepherd king is that you would live a life of security, that you would feel secure. So much of our life is purpose to feel secure by the relationships that we have, by the lack of conflict that we try to pursue, by the amount of money we have in our bank account, by the way that people view us, by how many likes or subscribes we have in social media. We're trying to feel secure. And yet the promise of the shepherd king is that you can live secure because he stands for you and he shepherds you. He is near to you. He is guiding you. You don't have a removed king. You have a shepherd king. This reminds me of what Jesus says, the storied one from the lineage of David, the ancient of days, Emmanuel, God with us, the king of kings who is a shepherd shepherd his people, us. He looks at us and he says this in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus is the shepherd king, the king of kings who is not removed from his people yet identifies with his people. The book of Hebrews says that he empathizes with you in your weakness so that you might approach him, you might approach the throne of grace and ask for help in your time of need. Jesus is the shepherd who wants to stand for you and wants to shepherd you and guide you and wants you to live securely. And he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, come to me. Anyone who's burdened and heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. He promises to give rest. But there's something really important to understand about the way that Jesus speaks about rest. And he's saying that it does not happen passively. Meaning, you don't just believe that Jesus can provide rest and all of a sudden you find it. He is inviting you to take up his leadership. He says, come to me, all who are burdened, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, a yoke was a wooden cross piece that would be placed over the necks, oftentimes of two animals, so that they might pull together as one. Because two animals, 
that are connected together can pull much more weight than one can on its own. They'd pull a wagon or a plow. Here's what Jesus is saying when he says, take my yoke. He's saying to you and to me, oftentimes we are trying to pull the weight of our life ourselves. The nations are set against us. People and bosses and friends and others are set against us. It feels like we're surrounded. There are people that want to defile us. And so we have all these pressures and all these insecurities and we feel anxious and we feel stressed and we're carrying all these things in life and life feels burdened and heavy laden, but we're pulling it alone and it feels like we're getting nowhere. Jesus says, take my yoke, which means, hey, I have a spot right next to me for you. Come and attach yourself to me. Walk next to me. That's why when he says, take my yoke, you learn from me. I'm going to pull you with me in the direction you are meant to go. Attach yourself to me. You see, rest is not passive. You have to take the yoke of Jesus. You have to come to him. And you have to find it in him. He's inviting you to find rest and to learn from him, to learn that even when you feel counted out, you can stand firm, that even when you feel overlooked, you can live secure, that though you may feel small, you are not small. You are connected to a mighty ruler, the king of kings, the ancient of days, and he promises rest. You see, what he says is this, and this is so important for us to understand because I think we get this the wrong way. He says that rest is found and taken, not earned and li or liquidated. Many of us are seeking rest in all the wrong ways. One of the things that we want more than anything in life is rest. We're pursuing all of our dreams and our career goals, and we're trying to get everything that we want out of life so that we can rest. We can live securely. But many of us are trying to earn our rest. We, we think like this, or, and many times we say this. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just working really hard right now. I'm trying to be really productive. I'm really taking advantage of every opportunity that is around me. I'm just trying to steward everything really well right now so that in the future, I can have margin for rest. Not right now. Right now is no rest. No days off, right? All gas, no brakes. I'm just, I'm going to do it all now so that I can rest, and it's like in the future, like, when I retire, then that's when I think I'm going to rest. We picture ourselves drinking coffee for hours with no agenda. There's always like a beautiful vista for all of us that we're sitting on. We're going to earn it by our career choices, by our productivity, by how hard we work, by our discipline. We're going to earn it. And sometimes we, we're not getting the rest that we need in the moment. And so because we have this like distant future, we're almost like prophets. Like in the future, I'm going to find rest through all of the, the effort I'm going to do now to earn it. But I need some rest now, so here's what we think. You know what I'm going to do? How do I find rest now? How do I create margin for rest? Liquidate people from my life. Right? I need some rest. These people, they're liquidated. They're gone. These party invitations, they're gone. These priorities, that's gone all these things that are crowding out our life and feel set against us and are, are pushing in on our rest, we just liquidate them, get them out. 
Because we're trying to earn our rest in the future, but we want some now, so we're kind of like prophets. We look in the future and the, the near at the same time, and we either liquidate people and places and things, or we're trying to earn it in the future. And you know what you find when that is your approach to have rest? A life that is laborious and heavy laden. Because you'll never earn it. There will always be something else to pursue. You will never earn rest. You cannot. And no matter how many people and things you liquidate from your life, you're never going to create enough margin for rest. Because rest is deeper than just having some time to yourself. It's rest for your soul. That's what Jesus says. I'm going to give you rest, not just on a Saturday morning. I'm going to give you rest for your soul. And how do you discover that? Jesus says that you come to him. You find it in him. You see, when you come to faith in Jesus, when you see that he gave his life for you, that he was born God in the flesh, the son of God laid in a manger as we celebrate in Christmas, the wonder of the incarnation, but then he lived the life that you couldn't, a perfect life, and he died the death that you and me deserve on the cross, and he was buried, and yet he came forth from the grave victorious, and he invites you into relationship with him, and in relationship with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, and he wants to redeem and to save and to restore your soul, that your soul may find rest. He says, you look no further than come to me. Come to me. You will find it in me. But it's, it's more than just saying that I'm going to Jesus in faith and I'm believing in Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. That is the first step. But when you come to see J Jesus as Savior, who do we also say Jesus is? Savior and what? Lord. We come to Jesus as Savior, forgiven, loved, though we're insignificant and we're overlooked and we are failures. We are redeemed because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us in his resurrection. And we find rest in Christ, but then he invites us to take his leadership, to take his yoke, and to walk alongside of him and learn from him because he's the Lord of our life. You see, we put on the yoke of Jesus and he walks alongside of us and the way that we walk with Jesus is how? In his word. You see, we say these things all the time, like read the word of God, spend time in prayer, come to church and worship with God's people, take moments of meditation and silence, prioritize getting to know and living life with God's people. And sometimes these things just become rituals that we say in the church, but they are so vital because without them, you will never discover rest. Because you find rest by going to Jesus and walking with him. And he says, read this word. It's all about me. It shares the promises I have for you, the plans that the nations don't know that are set against you, but you can know because they're written right here for you. Come to me in prayer because when you feel weak, I empathize with you. Come to me in silence because I can speak even in silence, sometimes even more profoundly. Come sing songs to me of worship because we're not doing karaoke on Sunday. God is with us. He wants to hear us give him the worship that he is due, the honor that is due his name. And join with his people because these promises are not just for you as an individual, they're for all of us, God's people. You see, we come to Jesus as Savior and Lord, and what do we find? Rest for our souls. And sometimes we say, I don't know about that, because I don't know if God wants to put up with someone like me. That's why he says that his leadership is gentle and lowly. 
That is so important to hear. See, gentle and lowly, the lowly part is speaking to what Micah is saying here is that God identifies with people that feel like Ephrathites. People that feel like they may have been born from Bethlehem, an overlooked, insignificant city, and they themselves feel that way. Guess what? Jesus steps right into that space, and he connects with you when you feel that way too. And his leadership is gentle. So when you come to God and you say, listen, I don't know. God's got way bigger problems in the world than this problem that I have. No, he doesn't. He's big enough to handle all the problems in the world and your problem that you view as small. He's gentle and he's lowly. He wants to be near to you, wants you to walk with him. And then the other thing that we think is this. Listen, (laughs) Jesus doesn't want me to walk alongside of him and take his yoke because I keep tripping up in life. I keep falling on my face in life. I'm like, I'm ashamed to Jesus in the way that I live. Well, here's what's interesting about taking a yoke. When you yoke two animals together, you don't typically yoke two animals that are equal in power and strength. You place one really strong oxen next to a weak one so the weak one can learn alongside of the strength of the other. So when Jesus invites you to take his yoke, here's what he's saying. When you fail in life and when you fall in life, Jesus is still standing because he is strong. Think about it like this. Whenever you stumble and fall in life, you actually never fall. If you're yoked with Jesus, you fall, but Jesus is still standing. Micah 5 says that he stands for you and he shepherds you. When you're yoked with the leadership of Jesus, you never fall. You keep moving forward. You see, rest is not found through your efforts that you, as if you could earn it. You cannot liquidate enough things in your life to create margin for rest. You will find rest for your soul when you come to Jesus, you find it in him, and you take his leadership upon you. This is the promise of Micah 5 for us. This is our reality, that we have the Ancient of Days, the King of Kings, who rules the whole world, who was from the lineage of David and was born in a little town in Bethlehem and identifies with people that feel like Ephrathites, little and overlooked and small. And when the nations are pressed against you and when things are surrounding you, guess what? None of those people and none of those things know the plans of God. And the plans of God for you is rest for your soul and victory in your life. That is what Advent is calling you to remember about who you trust in and who you celebrate. Jesus, your Savior and your Lord, the King of Kings. I pray that this Advent, that is what you hold on to and you remember how blessed your perspective is. You don't take it for granted because Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 16 through 17. He said, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear for truly I say to you many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Don't take for granted the blessing of your vantage point that you get to see Jesus clearly for who he is, your Savior and your Lord that invites you to find rest and take hope. Regardless of what is said against you, you can take hope. I pray that that is how you step into this Advent season. Amen.